And to go from being this you know, high-level soldier to a person who couldn't even move, it was pretty devastating. So hearing them say, we're not really worried about the recovery right now. We want to just get you through this operation because it's going to be intense. That made me mad. That scared me a lot. But I didn't have a choice. Hello and welcome to The Daily Helping with Dr. Richard Schuster. Food for the brain, knowledge from the experts, tools to win at life. I'm your host, Dr. Richard. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, and whatever you do, this is the show that is going to help you become the best version of yourself. Each episode, you will hear from some of the most amazing, talented, and successful people on the planet who followed their passions and strive to help others. Join our movement to get a million people each day to commit acts of kindness for others. Together, we're going to make the world a better place. Are you ready? Because it's time for your daily helping. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Daily Helping Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard, and I am honored to share with you today's remarkable guest. Marcus Aurelius Anderson is an author, TEDx speaker, keynote speaker, U.S. Army veteran, and high-performance mindset coach who works with corporations, leaders, CEOs, and entrepreneurs. He speaks, writes, inspires, and coaches others to overcome their own adversities and actualize their personal definition of success in every life area. I left out a huge chunk of his background because we're going to talk about this as we jump into the interview. Marcus, welcome to the show. There's so much that I'm excited to talk to you about. Thank you so much for having me today, Dr. Richard. I'm excited as well. This is going to be amazing. This is going to be awesome. And so as I alluded to, there's a lot that I left out from your bio because it is just so mind-blowing. So I want to go through your story and have you share with us uh, really what was the genesis of the work you're doing right now and talk about in particular your time in the military and what came out of that. Yeah, fantastic. And I'll give a little bit of context that led me up to the military. Some of the stuff that led to it is almost as important as what the end result was. For me, I joined the military out of a need of service. My great uncle was one of my biggest role models, and he was in Vietnam. He was in special forces, and I had gone through a divorce at 38 years old. And 10 days after the divorce, I got news that my great uncle was sick. Fly home from Atlanta, go back to Tulsa, and uh, he's already gone. So I'm a pallbearer at his funeral. I knew a lot about him from the family, but he never really spoke about himself. The uh, quiet professionals, they would say. When I got there and when I was a pallbearer, they had the 20 gun, 21 gun salute, all this regalia, all this accommodations. A full bird colonel was the one that utilized, eulogized him. And that really helped me see the gravity and the amount of impact that he had on the, this country's establishment at that point. And I was, he was always very strong, very mentally resilient, very stoic. And I was pretty good up until the point that they started playing taps and they started folding up the flag into the triangle. And when they gave it to my great aunt and they said, we are sorry for your loss. Thank you for your sacrifice. That's when I lost it. I just kind of turned into a blubbering mess. I'd always wanted to join the military, but I always had an excuse not to do it. And at that point in Atlanta, I was in chiropractic school. I was a year away, year and a half away from my, my doctorate. And I realized, okay, I'm divorced. I have no kids. I can put my education on hold if, I want, if I'm able to join the military to go serve my country. So I went and spoke to a recruiter. And walking into the recruiter at 38 years old, you can imagine they had some questions. 
I asked what the age limit was and they said 35. They asked me how old I was. I said 38. And I went to turn to leave and the recruiter said, well, come talk to me. Let me know what you're all about. I explained to him kind of what I just talked about earlier. And he said, well, it sounds like a pretty compelling motivation. Are you smart? And I said, well, I don't know. I'm talking to a recruiter at 38 years old. So he gave me a a mock ASVAB, one of their entry-level courses. And after having a degree in human biology and then in a doctoral level course, it was easy to do well on that. From there, I took a a PT test. I maxed the PT test out. He was like, okay, you're in great shape. You're a natural leader. You're mature and you're intelligent. He said, you're what the, the army's looking for. And so he asked me what I would like to do. He told me all these amazing jobs that I could be doing. He showed me all these graphics and all these video clips of all the stuff I could be doing that I would get educated in the military with that would translate into the civilian sector really well, such as you know, understanding stuff about technology, understanding stuff about, at that point, uh, a lot of security online, things like that. And I said, I want to be in the infantry. And he kind of laughed. He said, you don't get it. You can do whatever you want. And I said, Sergeant, you know, with all due respect, if you don't get it, this is what I want. And if I can't do this, then I'm just going to walk away. We went back and forth for a little bit, but eventually, long story short, he signed my uh, you know, age release and he, he slid it over to me and he said, hey, it's your life. So uh, six months later, I'm getting out the bus at Fort Benning, getting yelled at by guys that are younger than me and competing with guys that are half my age. But it's exact, exactly what I needed at that point. And once I got through infantry school, I got stationed up with my unit. And that's when things started to get kind of interesting. We were preparing to deploy. And with deployment, the... The training is always rapid, go, going up quickly. They always ratchet it up. And they push our deployment back. But if they give you more time to train to deploy, they always increase the intensity because you can never be well-trained enough. You never, never can be conditioned enough. You can never be intelligent enough to go out when it comes to that. So if you have extra time, they want to really push that. In the midst of that, in 2012, while we were preparing to deploy, I suffered a severe spinal injury that left me paralyzed from the neck down. And that's when everything in my life really got turned on its head. And it really made me take a good hard look at my life to figure out what do I do now? So how did that injury happen? Talk to us about that for a moment. So leading up to it, I had a lot of uh, neuropathy, uh, numbness in my hands and my feet, but I was stationed in upstate New York, 20 miles south of the Canadian border. So I just, and it was in February. So I just assumed we were out in the elements for two to three weeks at a time to simulate battle conditions. And so I just thought, well, that's just because it's cold. It's just because this is, you know, it's, it's a lot colder than it is in the Midwest. But then even whenever we would come back to civilization, I would still have a hard time feeling things. I had a lot of pain in my body. But at 38 as a soldier, you understand that. That's just what is your, the reality is going to be. But you use your mind to push those hardships back. But I started having trouble holding on to the bar when I would do pull-ups. I never had trouble with that before. I had trouble running. I had trouble staying up with the, with the rest of the pack. And that's when I knew that there was something going on. But I thought, well, I'm mission-driven towards this idea of deployment. I'll figure that out whenever we get back. Well, what ended up happening was from all the attrition, all the compression, all the training, a disc in my neck had ruptured. And when the disc ruptures, it actually exploded into my spinal cord. And so you're a doctor, you understand when that disc pushes posteriorly back into your, your actual spinal cord, it compresses everything from that nerve root down. So from C5 down, I had no communication between the cerebral spinal fluid or any communication from my brain to the rest of my body. And that's why I wasn't able to move. So they rushed me to the hospital immediately. They, they say, we're going to you know, 
do an operation on you. I was hoping, I know it sounds silly, but as a soldier, you're like, well, I hope that this doesn't take very long because I have guys, you know, really counting on me, on my team. I hope they can just give me a shot or give me uh, some sort of procedure and then I can leave. But it became very obvious when they did the MRI that this was something that wasn't just going to go away on its own. And that's when they slide me down the operating room and they say, well, we're going to do a disectomy. We're going to remove all this disc from your, all the debris from your spinal cord. And then we're going to fuse your, your neck together. We're going to put a lot, of ti- a lot of titanium in there. And so in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, well, once they remove this impingement on my spine, I should be okay, right? And they said, nothing. It was quiet. It was crickets. And that's not what you want to hear when you're being told that, especially as soldiers, especially as men, especially as people, our vocation is our identification of what we are. It's our vocation is our identity. And to go from being this you know, high-level soldier to a person who couldn't even move, it was pretty devastating. So hearing them say, we're not really worried about the recovery right now. We want to just get you through this operation because it's going to be intense. That made me mad. That scared me a lot. But I didn't have a choice. Were you still in your mind believing that this was going to be something that they would fix the damage and you'd be right back doing your thing as a soldier? That's what it was. I I kept thinking that the sooner they can do this, the sooner I can get back. I hope I can keep my place. You know, you you train your guts out for, for months at a time and you build this camaraderie with men. Adversity is what strengthens everybody and common shared adversity is what brings really, really powerful connection to anybody. And so knowing that their life is on the line that's one of the biggest motivations you'll ever have in your life to train for something. So take us through what happened next. What happened next is I get on the operating table. They put the anesthesia over my head. I speak, I I count down from 100, I get to about 98. And then it's just cold and dark. All I see is blackness and all I feel is cold. Then I wake up in the ICU. And when I wake up, the... The surgeon's there and he's very congratulatory. He says, hey, Mr. Anderson, welcome back to the land of the living. And he says sort of sheepishly, hey, you know, you, you had us worry we lost you. I didn't really comprehend what he was talking about. How can you lose me? I'm a 180-pound guy. How are you going to lose me? <laughs> and he says, no. He says, you flatline. We didn't know if we were going to get you back. And so that was pretty... Uh, I was sort of blown away by that idea. And I'm still unable to move. I'm in a neck brace at this point. So what little movement I did have is completely arrested and I'm still paralyzed. And he says, the good news is we brought you back to the land of the living. The bad news is this is what you're left with. And he says, if you were going to be able to walk, it would have happened by now. The amount of damage to your central nervous system and to your neurology is just tremendous. So I don't even want to tell you to to think about trying to walk because that is just going to set you up for devastation, for anger, for depression, for a lot of inability to cope with this. So uh, just try to get some rest. So that's a, a big bomb to drop on you, especially when 24 hours before you're unable to move and then all of a sudden this happens and they say, oh yeah, by the way, this is what you're left with now. You can't even take care of yourself. So you're sitting here you know, immediately pr- prior to the procedure thinking, I'm going to get right back out into the action, be with my guys. And then, then the surgeon comes and tells you, number one, you died. Uh, and we somehow brought you back. And number two, you're never going to walk again. That's exactly it. It's it really what I talk about in in my book is I say I went in that heartbeat. I went from preparing for war on the battlefield to a war within my own body and mind. 
And that's when the real war actually began because I was just like everybody, the, the five stages of you know, acceptance, I was in denial. I, I thought, well, if what he said is true and I died, then if I can overcome death, then this whole walking thing shouldn't be a big deal. But clearly it was, it was something where the first day went, the second day went, and then by the time I got after a week in the ICU and nothing was improving, that's when it became very real that this was something that I couldn't just hope would go away, I couldn't just wish away, and that I wasn't just going to magically wake up from as if it was a bad dream. So take us through, you know, now you're, you mentioned the five stages of acceptance and you really weren't accepting any of this. You're basically denying the reality. Take us through the, the mindset you're going through at the time because everything that you knew to be true was not true. And you mentioned, and you put it so beautifully, the war within, the war within your body and mind. So take us through that struggle and how you moved through that. That was it. I, I went through the denial phase pretty quickly and I went to anger, as you can imagine, and I stayed there for a tremendous amount of time. For me to have my physicality taken away from me was the worst thing you could do. I would literally rather be dead than to not be able to do what I was training to do. So for me, that anger was omnipresent and it was in everything I did. It was around, I was spitting venom at people that would come in to take care of me. I was angry at everyone around me, but the person that I was the most angry at was myself because I was 40 years old at this point. So at 40 years old, most people are looking back on their life. They're looking at their accomplishments. They have a family. They have this incredible job, home, career. And I'm literally broke, divorced, bedridden, and paralyzed. I'm the complete antithesis of that. And I was angry at all the opportunity that I'd been given that I had wasted. I thought about all the, the talent, all the time, all the potential I had that I assumed that I would always have. And that's what people always think that things are good in their life, that it will always be good in their life. Or when we're young, we think that we will always have time because up until that point, we have. But the reality is we all have only a limited amount of time and only a certain window to really make the most impact that we can with our lives in the most positive manner. And so for me, I just... It was one thing to... like I was literally suicidal. I wanted to take my own life, but I wasn't even physically able to do it. So even after making that decision, there's no way I can act on it. So now I'm forced to just sit here with this anger and this hate and this adversity and really look at it and examine it. And that was the hardest part for me was to understand that there had to be something within this. There had to be a lesson that I'm overlooking in this. And I've done martial arts my entire life. I've, I've studied philosophy my entire life. And I kept having all these like little tidbits, all this like... Mem- I remember things that I'd read before that would come back to my mind saying, this too shall pass, or if it's endurable, endure it. But that just sounds like a bunch of flowery junk when you're actually in the heat of it. When it's you, when it's somebody else, it's easy to be philosophical about somebody else's headache. But when it's your own... It's different. When it's your own, now you want to be the exception to the rule. You want it to be something that doesn't apply to you. You want to think, oh, well, that won't happen to me. But it does. And that's why it's so important to have this mentality before you get into the fray. Hey, guys. Dr. Richard here. For the past seven years, I've been privileged to bring you incredible guests who are changing the world and can help you become the best version of yourself. 
I'm really excited to share with you a new quiz that I created based on my clinical training that will curate for you a custom list of my top episodes and actionable strategies to help you wherever you are on your journey. All you need to do is go to drrichardschuster.com to take it, and it's 100% free. You'll be taking the next step on the journey to unlocking the power of you, and I can't wait to see where you'll go. And, and even though you had done that work and you knew all of the, the buzzwords of personal development, you were still in that place of, of suicidality. What started turning the tide for you? For me, it, it was the anger for about three months and understanding eventually I woke up after three months and realized this anger is not serving me. If, if anything, it's impeding my ability to heal. It's impeding my, impeding my ability to do anything positive from here. And it came back to gratitude. And I, I want to be specific about what gratitude is for me. Gratitude is a buzzword for a lot of people. And to me, a lot of people will use it as a very glorified way to sit on their hands around their lives. They'll sit there and they'll see everything falling apart around their, their life. And they'll say, oh, but I'm grateful. And it comes out like this defeated passive mindset. Gratitude in my mind is a verb. It's about being grateful. It's about acting in a grateful manner. So if you're grateful for your audience, you treat them with respect. If you're grateful for your family, you treat them with love. If you're grateful for your life, you act in a grateful manner to everybody around you. You're saying thank you. You're, you're acting with courtesy. But a lot of people that talk about gratitude now, they're, they're not doing that. It's very much this, like I say, a buzzword. They act like if they just say that, that everything will be okay. I said all that to say this. I knew that I had to find something to counteract all the anger that I was feeling. And the opposite for, of anger for most people is love. But for me, it had to be gratitude because mm. I didn't have a whole lot of... For better or for worse, I was sort of isolated when I was injured. And so I was having to go through a lot of this on my own. And that's why it was so difficult. So for me, I try to think of anything. I remember reading in Zen where they would say, oh, we'll be grateful for your breath. But even then, I, didn't, I couldn't do that because I, I was existing. I wasn't living. But what I did is I took myself out of the equation and I didn't make it about me. And I said, okay, is there anybody, anyone in this world that was able to benefit from my injury? And after a lot of hard thought, I realized, well, I believe that this injury was inevitable. I believe that it was going to happen no matter where I was on the planet. So if I'd have been deployed overseas with my unit in the infantry at that time and had suffered that injury... For every one man who was injured, it takes two men to pull him to safety. And that was the beginning because I realized, wow, if I'd have been over there when that happened, I would have compromised my team. That means my squad would have been put in danger. That means the Chinook helicopter that would have had to fly into a hot zone would have been put in danger. The medical team on that, on that ship would have been put in danger as well. And all, there were over a dozen other people whose lives would have been put in harm's way if I'd have suffered that injury overseas. And when I had that realization for the first time in months, I was genuinely unconditionally grateful because I was just happy that nobody else had been injured. I, I literally said, wow, I'm lucky. And I couldn't believe that I said it. It was almost like I heard somebody else saying it. And once I started doing that, and once I started seeing my adversity as a gift instead of a curse, a week after I had that genuine radical gratitude, I started getting a little bit of feeling back into my left hand. That's amazing. And so there's been a ton of research 
in terms of emotional states. And, you know, we know that you can't be actively gratitude, or excuse me, you can't actively have the feeling of gratitude while concurrently having these other negative emotions. So you started experiencing that physiological shift, and then you started having feeling back in an extremity. And now all of a sudden, you're, you've got hope for the first time in, in months. So take us through the next part of your journey, which you know, leads us to where we are today. And I, and I know that you're doing some incredible things, but t- t- take us through that next chapter. Absolutely. It's interesting because for a moment, I actually got that sort of arrogance back. I said, see, I knew I could do it. And when I lost that genuine gratitude is when I I slid back. So I sort of went through the entire cycle again and went to a place where I thought, no, I I need to be grateful. I don't need to be arrogant or have hubris. And that's what I started doing. And I started doubling down on that. And then eventually I started getting a little bit of feeling in the rest of my body. It took over a year and a half of physical rehabilitation, occupational therapy as well. But that's when I was able to realize, okay, I'm going to be able to actually take care of myself. The military medically retired me. And that's when I started back into... Even though I was recovered physically, I went from 180 pounds to 230 pounds because of the medication they had on me. And so even though I went through that hardship, there was, the hardest part was after trying to figure out, now what do I do? Because I've had this incredible revelation in my life, but then trying to go back into the building, to the civilian sector, what do I do with it? And I knew that I wanted to share the message, but I didn't know how to do it. So out of sort of um, reflex, I guess I went back into the military, I mean, back into the martial arts. And that helped me get the rest of my physical physicality back, holding a blade, punching a, a bag, um, rolling on the ground, doing jujitsu, holding a, a weapon. That was something that really helped my motor skill and helped my dexterous capacity kind of come back. When I was doing that, I actually started... I, I've got black belts in different multiple martial, art, multiple martial arts systems. And one of my students, I had a private student who I was teaching martial arts to. And he made a comment after we were going to lunch. He says, you know, all the stuff I'm learning from you... Because I, I would take the principles of those ideals and he would talk to me about problems that he was having with his business or with his, like his relationships. And I was always able to put that in there and show him what we just talked about here in this lesson, apply it here and now it will change that. And he says, I'm getting more value from you than I am from a business coach that I have. And I just jokingly said, well, just write me a check and we'll call it even, you know, whatever you want to do. And he walks outside, goes to his vehicle, gets a checkbook, writes me a check for six months of training, slides it over to me and says, well, how do you want to do this? And so that was my first client. He set me up with other clients in that kind of tax bracket. I started speaking from there. And it all kind of... I don't want to say it happened quickly because it took 40 some odd years of my life to get to that point. But that led to a person that was telling me, listen, there was a woman that was very adamant. She says, I want to buy your book. I'm going to speak an engagement after I'm done doing Q&A. And I said, no, I don't have a book. And she just looked at me she, like I was messing with her. She said, you don't have a book? She said, I want to give this story to my granddaughter who's going through a hard time right now. How can I possibly tell her about you if you don't have a book? So just like anything, if we listen to our, to our true audience long enough, they will eventually tell us what they need. So that's when I started into the, the year and a half process of writing a book. Within the process of doing that, halfway through the book, I was offered my TEDx talk. And then things started to really go into a, a much higher level thereafter. It's really amazing. So many people who have achieved success at the level you have will, will say some similar things that you know, they almost accidentally discovered 
the the path, but the signs were always there. You know, you you had that background in karate and were applying these different things. And and the writing of the book is basically, you know, somebody told you you needed it, and that book was inside of you all along. And, and here it is. So tell us the title of the book and take us through some of the tenets of what people will learn, other than your story, which you've been so gracious to share with us already. Of course, the the book is the same name as my TEDx talk. The book is called The Gift of Adversity. You can find it on Amazon. It's called The Gift of Adversity, Overcoming Paralysis and Pain to Find Purpose. And just like we mentioned, my story's in there and, and we deep dive into that. But I, I also go into not just the darkness and the hardship, but then again, like what, at this point where we're talking about it, I started realizing, okay, I have a second chance in my life. I have urgency and I have driving purpose. So then I go through and talk about the ways that I was able to really kind of go further. So I take tenets from the martial arts. I take experiences and stories from the martial arts. I talk about stories from the military, you know, being on safari in South Africa, all these different things that really helped me see, like you said, that the signs were always there. But it came down to just having true priority. And a lot of people, they want to prioritize everything. But the problem is, if everything is a priority in our lives, then nothing is a priority. And so we spread ourselves too thin. We're trying to do too many things. We are much better off trying to find three to five things that we're really, really passionate about that really, really offer us something that's, that's powerful and profound than to try to do a million different things and, and be a jack of all trades. So for me, it, it came down to being serious about understanding this is what I want to tell people. I want to give them this powerful information. And if I can give people the information without them having to go through the hardship that I went through, then in my mind, I've already won. The idea is to try to convey the message to just be a vessel and to help people. And the, for better or for worse, adversity is an inevitability. So if you're in business, we're going we're gonna to have adversity. If we're in you know, personal development, we're going to have it. Obviously, in life with our relationships, with our family, there's always going to be that. So understanding this idea now and having these concepts is what will help us because it's almost like learning how to swim. If I wait until I fall into the water to decide, hey, I should probably learn how to swim, it may be a little bit too late. The idea is to have this idea and have this knowledge and start looking for the opportunity within the adversity now than before we're in the middle of the heat of battle because once we're in it and all the emotion is there and all of the adrenaline dumps into our body, as human beings, emotion assassinates the truth. So it's difficult for us to be objective when we're in the middle of it. And that's why it's so important for us to understand these things now. So understanding, listen, I'm, I'm learning from this, that this is strengthening me. This hardship is making me more powerful if I'm willing to learn the lesson and if I'm willing to do the work within it. But so many people will get stuck in some sort of hardship and then they allow that to be their ceiling. And then they never develop outside of that. And they just stay in that place. They never evolve. And then now they spend the next 50 to you know, 70 years of their life in this very arrested mental development and in my mind, that is a huge travesty for what the human potential is. No question about that. So for somebody who's listening to this, and maybe they are feeling stuck or they're in this place of adversity, give us some of your top actionable strategies that somebody can implement today to start making improvements in their lives. So one of the questions that I ask in my book and my TEDx talk is this, if you can put this into action, if you ask yourself this honest question and do the work with it, it will reshape everything you do. And I'll just ask everybody listening. If you woke up tomorrow paralyzed from the neck down, what would you wish you would have accomplished with your life? And if they will let that, if they will sit with that and they will let that sit with them for a little bit, 
it will help them prioritize quickly everything that's going on. If they don't like the job that they're at, or if they don't like the relationship they're at, or if they don't like where they are currently in their lives, this will be their call to action to realize, wow, you know, maybe I don't have enough time. Maybe I should be more diligent about what I'm trying to get done. Or maybe I should be more concerned about myself and my own development and helping those around me as opposed to binging on something on Netflix. That's one of the most important things. Something else that I talk about, I call it the adversity scale. And whenever we're working through our lives, there's a lot of hardship. There, it's just, like I said, it's inevitable. And one way for us to be objective about this is to be able to write things down on a piece of paper because, again, that takes the emotion away from it and it makes us look at things very logically. So if you're going through hardship currently, if you're having a bad day, if it's a Monday and your coffee spilled and you're in traffic and this person was rude to you, it's easy to kind of allow that kind of cycle to continue. But that's a cycle of complaining and it perpetuates and it creates gravity and then it repeats. But if you look at the adversity scale, if you look at the very top of the scale, 10 is the hardest thing you've ever been through in your life. And at the bottom of the scale is zero. And that's heaven on earth, the most, the happiest that you've ever been. And if you look at your life objectively and say, okay, this hardship that I'm having right now, being stuck in traffic on a Monday morning, probably, if I'm really honest, that's probably about a three. And it helps you gain perspective about how hard this really is. And it takes you away from that mentality of continuing to just snowball this mindset of, man, I'm in a bad mood. Man, my morning started off badly. And now they think that that will perpetuate into the afternoon, into the evening, the rest of the day. That begins the rest of the week. And all of a sudden, these are the people that hate Mondays, love Fridays, and just want to post on social media about how quick the the weekend was. That's not how we should be living our lives. We only have about 30,000 really good years 30,000 really good hours in our life to apply. And if you allow those to just kind of go by you, it's going to be really difficult to make any sort of impact in your life. And I'm not saying that you have to go out and change the world. But if you are a father, if you are a husband, if you are a son, if you are a brother, if you are anybody that's in society, there is something within you that you can help other people with. There is a knowledge that you possess that you can help other people with. And if you can do that, that in and of itself is going to give you a tremendous amount of positive impact on other people. And that reciprocity is undeniable when it comes to your life. Absolutely. Very well said, Marcus. I want to spend a couple of moments talking about your podcast. Tell us about the show and and what people are going to gain from that by listening to it. Yes, thank you so much. The, the podcast is called Conscious Millionaire Epic Achiever. J.B. Crumb III, as we both know, is incredible. And he has been instrumental in helping me craft that. And what I do is I go through and I talk to people that are just experts in their field. I've had some pretty incredible names on there already. But every person I've ever run into, no matter how successful they are, the higher their level of success, there's usually a tremendous amount of hardship and adversity that they've gone through. So what I do is we, we find out what they're an expert in. We give a lot of value with that. But then we go through and we unpack their hardship. We unpack their gift of adversity. And we, we see how far they've gone. And what it does is, in my mind, it helps people realize that if they're going through hardship right now, look at these other people. Look how they've overcome it. Look how they've seen it as a catalyst. Look how they've turned this hardship into an opportunity and turned it into an epic win. And that's what I want people to see. So even if they don't get... You can get inspiration from it or you can get pragmatic advice from it. And to me, that's kind of the way I think about it. And that's the goal is to go out and do that. And I'm very honored and humbled to have had the kind of impact with it that I have as of so, so far. Outstanding. Uh, We are at time, Marcus, and I've loved our discussion. As you know, I I wrap up every episode by asking my guest a single question, and that is, what is your 
biggest helping, the single most important piece of information you'd like the audience to walk away with after hearing our conversation today? So the single biggest piece would be this. People say you don't know what you got till it's gone. That's not true. Everybody knows what they have. It's just they assume that they will always have it. So if there's something that you want to get done, do it now. Stop waiting. Stop hesitating. Stop compromising and start taking action on it as soon as you're done listening to our voices. I love it. Marcus, where can people find you? You can find me at MarcusRelaysAnderson.com and you can find me on social media under the same handle as well. And uh, you know, reach out to me. I'd love to talk to you. Perfect. And we'll have everything Marcus Aurelius Anderson in the show notes at thedailyhelping.com as well as on the Daily Helping app available in Google Play and the iTunes store. Marcus, thanks so much for coming on the show today. I loved our discussion. Thank you so much for having me today, Dr. Richard. It was it was fantastic. Awesome. I appreciate that. And I also appreciate each and every one of you who chose to listen to this episode. If you like what you heard, go subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a five-star review because this helps other people find the podcast. But most importantly, go out there today and do something nice for somebody else, especially if you don't know who they are and post it in your social media feeds using the hashtag MyDailyHelping because the happiest people are those that help others.